It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Welcome back, everyone, to part two of The Search for Bridie Murphy. This is your host, John Hagedorn, and this story, I have to admit, fascinates me at a number of levels. This is one of the best documented stories of past life recall that has ever come out of the world of psychiatry. I carefully use the term past life recall because it allows all of us, regardless of our religion or beliefs in the paranormal, to look at this objectively without having to buy into reincarnation. And how that recall is achieved can be left up to each one of you. And I believe that Bridie's story deserves an objective look. If for any reason you missed part one last week, I'm recommending that you listen to that first so you have the background of the story. Here in part two, we're going to take an in-depth look at Bridie Murphy's story, which was delivered by Colorado housewife Virginia Teague through six hypnotic trances under the direction of Maury Bernstein, an amateur psychiatrist, taking a period of about a year to complete. And we'll let you be the judge and jury as we retry this case, which was judged by the newspapers, basically, and the public and the psychiatric community, to have been a case in which Virginia Teague was not only telling Maury Bernstein what he wanted to hear, they said, but that she'd gotten her entire volume of information from her own life contacts, education, and experiences. The verdict a textbook case of micromnesia. That was a safe answer for 1956, and almost wherever you search today, they're still providing that same safe answer. But there has been a tremendous amount of research gathered in the past 60 years to verify the existence of various forms of past life awareness. The hows are still in debate, but the fact that it happens is no longer in dispute in the scientific community. This reincarnation story, if reincarnation is indeed what it is, consists of the life of an Irish woman named Bridget Kathleen Murphy McCarthy from her birth in 1798 until her death in 1864, Bridie being the very popular nickname for Bridget, and included scenes in addition to her life that took place beyond her death until her rebirth in 1923. These scenes drawing heavy fire from sections of the religious community. The details of Bridie's life in Ireland, as spoken very convincingly by Virginia Teague, who had never been to Ireland, were documented on tape recordings and provided volumes of details about Irish life, folklore, and customs as they applied to Bridie's experiences, often offering up words and names and even obscure facts that, as many people believe, no one could have absorbed through books, media, or personal contact with people from Ireland. Based on the stories of the witnesses present during these recording sessions, 
along with intensive digging into the lives of the persons involved, whose reputations were spotless. No serious claims of a hoax or trickery were ever brought to record. Only those claims of hoax written or shouted in anger by people whose own beliefs against the possibility of reincarnation felt challenged. And there were many of those. And clear bias was present among some influential newspapers, some Catholic leaders, many people with closed minds, and a psychiatric profession trying to protect their standards and wanting to avoid being associated in any way with the paranormal. The time was 1956. You could make the case that this was a time when post-World War II America was experiencing the beginning of a cultural revolution, and some minds were just opening up to the possibility of new realities, of UFOs, of racial integration in sports, of rock and roll, of women's rights, of the beatnik counterculture, of bold new musicals like West Side Story, of new approaches to education, and of a fascination in reincarnation, which the book and movie, The Search for Bridey Murphy, brought to the conversation anywhere people gathered. And I'm not saying all minds were open to it, but some were, and those few were willing to give the possibility of this story's being at least in part true a fair shake. In part two, I'm presenting the cases for and against the authenticity of the Bridey Murphy story, allowing you to decide if the existing label of micromnesia, which for years has been applied to Virginia Teague's story, is a fair label, and if not, why? I believe that the human mind is capable of many things that even now, with all the advantages of modern science, we are still trying to fathom. The human soul and spirit, and especially universal consciousness, still remain on the frontier of science. And maybe it's all better that it remains that way. Each of us gets to believe as much as we want. And we're all able to live with that. If suddenly we were all granted access to understanding our future, our past, our places in this world, the nature of our Creator, and the purpose of our existence, it may prove a heavier load than we can bear. So we're left in the sandbox guessing. Probably a blessing. Unexplained phenomena involving the possibility of reincarnation or the manifestation of an advanced intelligence has been well documented. Mozart wrote a sonata when he was four, and by the age of seven he had written an opera. From whence did this talent come? The Swiss government appointed a 12-year-old boy as an inspector of the Grand Maritime Canal because of his mechanical genius, which he had displayed earlier in his childhood. Samuel Ryshevsky, the international chess champion, at five years old, took on three international champs and beat all three. A two-year-old child in Massachusetts could read and write. That same child, by the age of four, could speak four languages, and by age seven he could tackle any geometry problem. There was Blind Tom, a Negro slave, who played his master's piano brilliantly the first time he ever laid hands on a piano. And there are hundreds, if not thousands, of examples like these out there. A case for reincarnation, you ask? Maybe. Maybe not. Micromnesia? Information that they got earlier in their lives and were somehow able to subconsciously use or share? Definitely not. DNA? Maybe. But very few of these types of cases have been handed down directly from the immediate family. 
Maybe those persons somehow accessed what Casey called the Akasic Records. Dr. Eben Alexander, the North Carolina neurosurgeon who went into a coma, was declared dead and later emerged with all his mind and senses intact and shared what he had learned in his afterlife in a book called Proof of Heaven. It was a fascinating book. He discovered that all of humanity is connected by a consciousness that transcends all things mortal and is defined by a limitless access to intelligence. He believes that scientific skepticism is a trap and that, quote, those who assert that there is no evidence for phenomena indicative of extended consciousness, in spite of overwhelming evidence to the contrary, are willfully ignorant. They believe they know the truth, he writes, without needing to look at the facts. That phenomena, as he described in another paragraph, being remote viewing, extrasensory perception, or ESP, psychokinesis, clairvoyance, telepathy, and precognition, and the like. And that scientific skepticism in this age of modern science comes down just as hard on belief in God and religion now as it does on reincarnation, soul, and afterlife. There also exists the possibility that some remnants from a past life might have been carried across. Just pure genius doesn't fully describe where those talents or abilities come from. And we're not given the ability to see into our past lives or know if past lives are even a reality. In part one, we did offer examples for the case against and the case for, but only a few. I really think that the surprise of this story is found in analyzing what Bridie Murphy told us and determining how much checked out. In the course of accomplishing this, one can't ignore the roadblocks that obviously biased critics placed in the way. The newspapers and magazines on the attack like to use so-called experts with names preceded by professor, reverend, and especially doctor. Dr. B.B. Rubinsky, often quoted, wrote, Since Mr. Bernstein could not be hypnotized by any method whatsoever, he must, according to the above statement, not have any real willpower. If not that, then he must, according to that same statement, be weak-minded or insane. As one can easily see, when his statements on hypnosis are examined closely, they lead to ridiculous conclusions. Responded William J. Barker of the Denver Post, Confronted with Rudzinski's reasoning, What kind of reasoning is this, you may well ask yourself? Bernstein can't be hypnotized, therefore he is insane. Confronted with Rudzinski's reasoning, Barker writes, Maury grinned and said to me, I have an even sillier synergism for you. Saints do not smoke. Bernstein does not smoke. Therefore, Bernstein must be a saint. Also, from the beginning of the independent investigation, it became clear that this was not going to be quick or easy. As Maury was to write, the matter of the search was put into the hands of an Irish legal firm, various librarians, and other investigators whose names were not revealed to me at the time. In this way, I could in no matter influence the investigation. It was to be a wholly independent project. And that was how the research started. Then the newspapers and magazines later sent investigators who debunked large parts of it, many times unfairly, and then some strong research was done to debunk the debunkers. Starting with Maury's early research, a Cork librarian recorded that no records of births, marriages, or deaths 
were kept before 1864 in Ireland. The search was complicated by the fact that Murphy was the most common name in Ireland. And keep in mind, there was no internet then, no ancestry files, and the only thing they had to work with was books and newspapers that could be found in the library. The publication was scheduled for the fall of 1955, and the manuscript had to be turned in six months prior to that. And no one could turn up any proof that Bridie existed, or her parents, other than accepting the power of her story and a number of obscure details that only an eyewitness could have provided. So Bridie's birth and death were never proven, and neither was any record of her marriage found. They did not have children, so no ancestry was possible there. The first names that checked out were that of the grocers where Bridie said she had shopped, John Kerrigan's and Farr's. They were unfindable at first, but after two weeks of searching, a librarian found a listing of John Kerrigan's grocery at 90 Northumberland Street in Belfast. Then grocer William Farr turned up at 59-61 to 61 Mustard Street, which lay between Donegal Street and North Street. Bridie had mentioned two names that worked with Sean at Queen's University. Fitzmaurice and McGlone. Those were found, as well as Sean McCarthy's name. An Irish commission on folklore was asked whether there had been a custom of having a dance when a couple was married, where people would slip money into a special pocket on the bride's dress, as Brady had said. And they confirmed that yes, that was a custom, and that a silver coin slipped into that pocket meant good luck. And yes, as Brady had said, there were thatched roofs in Belfast at that time and there was a rope company and a large tobacco company in Belfast. Her use of the words banshee and tup were correct. There was a popular song that then pronounced Sean as Sion, as she often called Sean. People also used John for Sean back in those days, and so did Bridie. Her monetary terms were all accurate, for pound, sixpence, copper halfpenny, and tuppence. Her account of the folk hero Cuchulain was correct, although her pronunciation of Cuchulain was not the usual. She said Cuchulain. Perhaps that was how it was read to her. She had spoken of a place called Moorn, in addition to the Moorn Mountains, which were well known. But neither any maps nor people could initially verify a place called Moorn, where she had. That was later verified by independent investigators. She had also mentioned that she had been hung upside down over the Blarney Stone to get what she called the gift of the tongue, which was thought preposterous initially. Scholars went after her on that one, notably one Dermot Folly, the Cork City librarian, believing that he had caught her in a gross error, saying that kissing the Blarney Stone was one of a number of superstitions that were but a late 19th century notion, and the Blarney Stone is only a few miles out of Cork but he later apologized when he discovered that T. Crofton Crocker in his 1824 book Research in the South of Ireland mentioned the kissing of the Blarney Stone as early as 1820. Bridie claims of eating muffins as a child and to have obtained books from a lending library in Belfast, and those claims were considered to be incorrect because they did not occur during her time, but later she was proved correct again on both. She also mentioned that tobacco was one of the crops she had seen grown around Cork, a fact that could not be verified by investigators, as that was not listed as a crop grown in that part of Ireland. But that was found to be true. Tobacco was grown locally. As to churches, there was a St. Teresa's, 
but investigators could not receive any acknowledgments as to the existence or not of Father John, and no marriage records are available. That would be worth another look today for anybody in Belfast, for gravestones, for baptism records, marriage records. As I've not heard of anyone doing that, in the graveyard, look for Bridget, Kathleen, McCarthy, or McCarty. Both the Belfast Newsletter and Queen's University, as she had said, proved to be there at the time, but no search was or has been to this day done to see if Bridie's husband, Sean Brian McCarthy, submitted any articles there, which Bridie said he had. His name is turned up with the likelihood that he might have worked there as a bookkeeper and not a barrister. C.J. Ducasse, an American philosopher who published a major study on psi research, devoted an entire chapter to Brady Murphy and listed a number of details that challenged the Life magazine piece that declared the Brady Murphy phenomenon officially debunked. First among his points, Life claimed that iron beds weren't introduced to Ireland until the 1850s. Therefore, a four-year-old child could not have peeled paint off them, as they didn't exist there. Ducasse found that Tomorrow Magazine had announced they had found an 1830 ad in Cork selling iron beds, which were being manufactured by Cork Ironworks. Also, mentioned in a book by Thackeray, places a vast number of iron beds in nunneries in the very early 1800s. Why in nunneries? Because they were sturdy and they were inexpensive. But we'll go one better on the iron beds. When you read the transcript of the sessions, Bridie never says iron. She says metal. So life jumped to the conclusion based on their misreading the transcript. Sloppy work at the least. Life magazine disputed Bridie's use of the words ditch when she described her burial. Tup to describe around her. Lau, L-O-U-G-H which is pronounced lock, lau, or low, to describe a lake or a river, and linen to describe a handkerchief, all proven correct by experts. Life claimed that there was no book using the name Deidre in the title until 1905. Wrong again. A paperback book with the name Deidre in the title did appear in 1801. The Chicago American also piled on with investigative reports trying to prove that the entire Bridie Murphy story was created from Virginia Teague's own life experiences and contacts. They claimed that Teague had lived for a while with an aunt named Mrs. Marie Burns, who no doubt regaled her with Irish stories and folktales. That was a huge attempt to discolor the truth on the part of the Chicago American, as Aunt Marie was born in New York of Scottish-Irish descent and spent most of her life in Chicago. She had never been to Ireland. The dauntless editor added that Aunt Marie was as Irish as the lakes of Kilkenny. Not knowing, of course, that there are no lakes in Kilkenny, and definitely not caring to research that, as everything they wrote was a hit job. Virginia Teague's response to that was, I was 18 when Aunt Marie stayed with us for a few months. I would have recalled her regaling me with Irish stories, don't you think? She did not. The Chicago paper also told a whopper when they claimed that Bridie had taken dance and recital lessons from a Mrs. H.S.M. One of those recital lessons, they said, was called Mr. Dooley on Archie Road, and that Virginia had taken lengthy Irish dialect lessons, and that Virginia, in addition to those lengthy Irish dialect lessons, was being taught how to dance Irish jigs. It was very generous of the Chicago American to protect the name of that teacher, by the way, 
using the initials HSM, while outing Virginia Teague's name. But nevertheless, a Denver Post reporter named Bob Byers was able to find Virginia's teacher, Mrs. Harry G. Saulnier, who said that Virginia was a pupil for a short time, but she must have been rather average, or, she said, I would have remembered her better. She did teach elocution, but said she had no recollection of the pieces memorized, so it couldn't have been her that gave that information to the reporters. In other words, they had made it up. And the teacher added that she'd never taught any routines, especially dance routines, as the paper had said. Virginia responded to the Chicago American article by saying that the only part of the piece that was even remotely right was that she did take elocution lessons back in 35-36 from her Uncle Lewis's sister, Emma, lessons that she taught Virginia and other kids as an after-school hobby. As to what she taught, Virginia couldn't recall, and she'd only learned two dances growing up, the Black Bottom and the Charleston, definitely not Irish jigs. One of Bridie's biggest attackers was Reverend Wally White, who we mentioned briefly in Part 1. He was the pastor of the Chicago Gospel Tabernacle, and he was writing articles that were appearing in a number of Hearst papers, including the San Francisco Examiner, which ran an article claiming that the Chicago Americans investigation was, quote, launched after it was learned that Mrs. Simmons, i.e. Virginia Teague, and here was where they dropped Teague's name, had attended Sunday school as a girl in Reverend White's church. The reader would naturally assume that Reverend White knew Virginia Teague and her family. Virginia responded to a Denver Post journalist that, quote, I attended Sunday school there from the time I was about four until I was 13 or so, and the Reverend White was not the Reverend there during those years. The first time I met him was the summer of 56 when he came to my door pretending to be a reporter. In reality, the Reverend's name and articles were used to infer that he had personal knowledge of Virginia Teague, when he had none, as well as to lend some religious authority to readers of the trash they were printing. And the articles were effective in turning public opinion against Teague and her story, and becoming another tool used to debunk the Bridie Murphy story entirely, which Life magazine did in 1956, and which, just a week later, Chicago American followed up with a story saying, We're so sorry to hear that the Bridie Murphy story has been totally debunked. What most damaging was that Chicago American story suggesting that Virginia had been influenced by the so-called Bridie Murphy Corkrell across the street, and making up not only the middle name Murphy, but saying that Virginia had fallen head over heels for Corkrell's son John. No matter that Mrs. Corkrell, upon Denver Post research, turned out to be the mother of the Chicago American editor, and that he had instructed her not to answer any reporter questions. As mentioned in Part 1, Virginia countered that Corkrell's son John, whom she knew as Buddy, not John, was seven to eight years older than she, and that she had never spoken to Mrs. Corkrell, and that she had no romantic interest in Buddy or a John or anyone else at her young age. Bridie was a very common Irish nickname. Murphy was the most common last name in Ireland. The Chicago Directory alone, in 1928-29, listed seven Bridget Murphys, but strangely, no Duncans or Kathleen's, no Sean Bryan's or Delanean McCarthy's, nor any Miss Strange or Amy Strange, nor any Catherine or Kevin Moores, who, by the way, Bridie had mentioned as being best friends of Sean and hers. But the article had expertly twisted the stories to sell completely false narratives, 
and by the time those articles had been seen in print, the damage had been done. And to add some of my research, Bridie was once so common a name in Ireland, England, and Scotland that it became a slang term for an Irish girl in English-speaking countries. You can look that one up. So having a Bridie across the street in what was probably an Irish neighborhood should not have made headlines. Yet it was the major anchor on which the Bridie Murphy story was tied to when it sank. In the 1965 edition of the original book, William Barker, the Denver Post writer, took on the debunkers point by point in an article titled The Case for Bridie in Ireland, bringing to light many of the items we've already covered. He brings up some excellent thoughtful points in his 19,000-word investigative report that are worth sharing. He says, To begin with, I'm going to remind you of a couple of things about hypnosis. An individual under hypnosis is not under oath and that an entranced person does not suddenly become omniscient. Just because the ability to recall is extended and enlarged by hypnosis, it doesn't follow that recollection suddenly becomes perfect or complete. If Bridie's phenomena is accepted at face value, he continues, it is a prodigious feat of memory. But memory, anybody's memory, is dim on many past events and apt to be an error on many more. Both Barker and Bernstein believed that Bridie was overstating the roles that her husband and father had in society, claiming they were barristers when they were likely not. But all this, along with her attitudes regarding Catholic and Protestant, tended to make her story even more genuine. Then add the consistency of her story through more than six hours of sessions, giving weeks and sometimes months apart and it was impossible to believe that any of this was not emanating from some kind of an external source. And so many examples in which deep research indicated that this story could only have come from a person who had lived it, a great example being the neighborhood Bridie said she'd grown up in, the Meadows. No one could find any record of a place called the Meadows in Cork. It was listed as one of the many facts that Life magazine compiled to debunk her story. Fact, they said, there is no meadows in Cork, and there are no wooden houses in Ireland. Yet Barker did discover an 1801 map of Cork that showed Mardyke Meadows, about a thousand yards wide and located between two arms of the River Lee. Seven or eight buildings are shown scattered throughout this tract of land, which was parkland with grazing cattle. And who would be surprised if that rural home was made of wood? It was two-story and you can bet the floors were made of wood and not stone. Why not the frame as well? We haven't covered much yet of Bridie's names of places and descriptions of her few travels, those being a trip as a young girl to Antrim and her honeymoon ride from Cork to Belfast to live with her new husband. According to Barker, her description of the glens of Antrim was saluted by the Irish as both accurate and intriguing, and more than one person spoke of her reference to black ballast as a possible and very typical Irish inversion of the word basalt, sometimes pronounced basalt. She speaks of Carlingford, Mourn, the Glens, Foyle, and so on in the region where she spent her adult life. Of interest was her mention of Bailey's Crossing and Doby, two places she vaguely remembered as being on the road that she and Brian took. And critics, by the way, slammed her description of towns along that route between Cork and Belfast, those same critics, not realizing that before today's tried-and-true road, there was another road, which was called the Old Coach Road. 
on which those locations, to someone with very old maps, could find those towns. Bridie had mentioned passing through a community she called Bailey's Crossroads, and another called Doby, as she pronounced it. As you may have guessed, neither are on any maps that are readily available. Barker did find a Bailey's Cross in County Cavan, where an English family named Bailey had once existed, and another a little further north, and again on the old coach road, in the Coot Hill Monaghan area, which was once called Dopey, D-O-P-Y, east of Collingford by about 45 miles. But another answer possibly arose when Barker went on Radio Aaron in Dublin and asked for ideas, and more than one Irishman called in and suggested Bridie might have passed through Dovia in Thurles County, Tipperary. Sounds like Doby, and she may have only been remembering what the coachman had told her as he was passing by, not like she had seen it on a map. One caller suggested that in Dovia resided the family of a Grant McCarthy. Maybe Sean Bryan was stopping there to introduce his bride to family. In Kurt J. Ducasse's heavily footnoted The Case of the Search for Bridie Murphy, he lays out the story. First, the Bridie statements that could not be verified. No traces of Bridie's birth, marriage, or death, as previously stated, have been found. It should be noted that vital statistics in Ireland do not go back before 1864, however. Bridie's husband, Sean Brian McCarthy, Sean being commonly called and named John, was very likely not a barrister, but he was a bookkeeper, as discovered by William Barker, who kept books for several of the business houses in Belfast and perhaps also for Queen's College, which would later become Queen's University. This was supported by the fact that in the 1858-59 directory, one John McCarthy, clerk, is listed, as well as in the 1861-62 directory. No verification has been found that a barrister named Duncan Murphy, Bridie's father, and his wife Kathleen, lived in Cork in 1798, and in that year had a daughter, Bridget Kathleen, nor that Bridget Kathleen married in Cork a Catholic named Sean John McCarthy, or that she died in Belfast, nor that there was a church in Belfast at that time named St. Teresa's Church, nor that serving in that church was a priest named John Joseph Gorman, who, as Bridie states, performed a second marriage ceremony there. Examples of Bridie's statements that have been verified Take it from William J. Barker's The Case for Bridie in Ireland. In order to invalidate the following statements, one would have to prove that Bridie somehow learned and retained these obscure facts from her childhood experience in Chicago or her life as an adult in the U.S. Let's start, he writes, with Bridie's mention of two grocers in Belfast from which she bought foodstuffs, Fars and John Kerrigan's. These were deemed non-existent by newspaper journalists. After two weeks of searching, by the Belfast chief librarian, who was very cooperative. The two grocers, both named exactly as Bridie had presented them, were found in the records in the first Belfast city directory in 1865-66. Yes, she died in 1864, and the directory was still being composed at that time, so we can assume that these two businesses had been there in her lifetime. A number of statements Bridie made were considered irreconcilable by experts. There was the Life magazine folklore expert Richard Haywood who guffawed at the notion that an Irish bride would tie little sacks of rice snapped on an elastic band around her leg as a sign of purity. Haywood wrote, Nonsense! Rice has never been a part of folk tradition in Ireland. Corn, oats, potatoes, yes, 
for centuries, but rice never, he wrote. If Mr. Hayward had had access to today's technology, he would have discovered at least the fact that the throwing of rice at weddings was an ancient Celtic tradition, predating Christianity, the rice symbolizing fertility. It is altogether possible, though not yet substantiated to a second source, that Bridie may have revived a forgotten Irish tradition connecting rice bags with purity. And here is that section of the interview. To set it up, Maury was trying to get Bridie to find and read her family documents. She had expressed some hesitation early on when he went down that road and had even asked him why he wanted to know. She said she also had letters. Maury, did you save any of those letters? Bridie, oh, I did. I saved them. Maury, would you tell me where you kept them so perhaps we can find them and read them? Bridie, I had my hut. It sounded like she might have been saying hutch, but held back. In my house. Maury, any particular place? Bridie. Oh, I had them. You know where the pewter dish is? It's a funny brown color. On the second shelf? Maury. On the second shelf? Bridie. And I had a little tiny portfolio up there. And I had some ribbons and some letters. Hmm. I had tiny little sacks of rice. And I had... They were sewed to my... There was an elastic band that my mother gave me to wear around my leg, and you snapped the little rice bags on it, and it's a sign of purity, and I kept it when I went away. If any of our listeners have heard of this tradition, we'd like to hear from you. This one has gone unanswered for 65 years, never been heard of. Was it Irish, or American, or made up? We'd like to know. About Bridie saying that her mother read to her from the sorrows of Deidre, and the Life magazine critic saying that Deidre's name was not included in the book title until 1905, was dead wrong. An inexpensive paperback was published by Bolton in 1808, entitled The Songs of Deidre and the Death of the Sons of Usnach. Bridie also said that one of the coins used in her days was a tuppence, or twopence, and the critics slammed that one, saying that the tuppence wasn't in use during her lifetime. But it was, in Ireland, in heavy use, from 1797 to 1850. These facts added to the many dozens of glimpses at early to mid-19th century Ireland, few of which have been proved wrong, indicated to responsible critics that had there been as much attention given to damning reports by the critics as was given to Bridie's story, the entire affair might not have been written off so easily. As is so common in life and in studying history, there's often a middle ground, and the search for Bridie Murphy offers us a lot of middle ground. The story tells us that even the reputed experts can be wrong, and often, that newspaper journalists can rush past the truth because they have failed to dig deep enough, that emotional bias can have a great deal to do with how a story is treated, as shown here by the examples of the Catholic Church going all in to debunk Bridie's story, that facts, especially when it comes to naming names and verifying dates gained from past life regression, can often be hard to come by, that reincarnation is a sensitive topic to a lot of people. The Chicago Americans articles really worked to categorize Virginia Teague sessions as being simply revivals and dramatizations under hypnosis of buried memories of her own childhood and youth in Madison, Wisconsin, and Chicago. Let's be honest, maybe some were. But when you consider the Reverend Wally White's name appeared at the head of a number of those Chicago American articles, 
He had also stated in no uncertain words that his purpose was to debunk reincarnation because of its assault upon established religious doctrines. And that makes you wonder how the Chicago American's final word was able to drive the spike into Bridie's story, tainting it enough to render it to being told as if it were all a hoax, or at the very least, a mischaracterization. The Chicago American summed up Bridie's childhood home, the Meadows, as being a lakefront park located two blocks from Virginia's home in Madison. There were no parks named the Meadows in Madison, but that didn't matter. They also swore that Virginia had a little brother who had died in infancy. That was a lie thrown in purely for overkill. When that article went syndicated, by the way, the Chicago American pulled that little non-fact as well as other lies out to protect themselves against libel. They had all helped to create the illusion that the newspaper was trying to create. I'll spare our listeners of hearing the remainder of what the San Francisco Examiner, the Chicago American newspaper, Life magazine, and others did to the story. But suffice it to say that they poured it on, and it wasn't honest reporting. It was hearsay, much of it biased, often couched in support of religious dogma, which must be hard for some of you to believe, knowing the opinions of journalists today. In one way, though, you can say that newsprint media hasn't changed much. They still pursue the almighty dollar, their bias is on display at all times, their flimsy research has earned them the nickname Drive-By Media, and they still believe they're peddling entertainment to either the stupid masses or to like-minded believers, and truth pretty much be damned. If you are going to judge what really happened here for yourself, then you owe it to yourself to watch the movie, The Search for Bridie Murphy, it's in black and white, on YouTube, and definitely read the book, which gives you the transcripts. You will find that once you've absorbed this information, you'll come to a number of conclusions. One, that these sessions were honest and not performed in any way. Two, that Maury felt that this was research that would benefit science and knowledge. Three, that the details of life in Southern Ireland as revealed through Bridie Murphy were not all available in books or travel guides and was told was very likely by a source that was living in the time using the language and terms of that time and place impossible to memorize and repeat accurately with stunning detail over the course of six hour-long sessions which occurred over a one-year period. Add to that the soft Irish brogue that was used, the mention of names that were verified, especially the grocers and the men Sean worked with the queens, and the performing of an Irish jig down to the last detail, which included a wake-up yawn by a Colorado housewife who had never danced a jig in her life. The Little White Lies that Bridie very possibly told about her father's and husband's occupations in order to impress socially. The suspicion she showed when asked where her money and important papers were. All adding up to the person behind the narrative being a complicated, thinking, human being with a completely different personality and life from that of Virginia Teague. What I take from this is that somehow, some way, whether it came to reincarnation or from Ginny Teague's being able to access a river of historic knowledge known only to the subconscious, and only available through hypnosis. Ginny allowed Bridie Murphy to share quite a bit of her life in Ireland in the 19th century, with us, sharing folk legend, songs, and stories, sharing the mundane process of ordinary life and death as she saw it, and afterlife as she saw it, sharing places and people, and other information so obscure as to make it nearly impossible to verify. Yet, with enough digging, it was. Well, it doesn't prove that Virginia is the reincarnation of Bridie Murphy, 
since Brady's existence was not proved historically as of this date. It does provide evidence that paranormal knowledge of obscure aspects of 19th century Ireland was given to us under hypnosis. What source Virginia tapped into under hypnosis? Science will never know. Psychology's big names in, in hypnotic past-life regression, like Dr. Ian Stevenson, admit that the Bridie Murphy story resembled many others in its inability to give us firm past names and dates that we could pin down for verification. But at the same time, we do get some incredible historical accounts. But Bridie Murphy still holds the title for the best that's ever come down the pike. She has challenged science and non-believers. She brought parapsychology two steps forward and opened a lot of minds as to possibilities. And for that, we owe Bridie Murphy and Virginia Teague and Maury Bernstein a thanks. Thanks for joining us at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. We do appreciate reviews very much. So please, especially Apple listeners, take a moment, if you will, and send us a review. Here are some of those reviews. Here are some new reviews. This one, five stars. Awesome. This is a great podcast. I listen to the stories faithfully on my way to work, at work, or on days off having my morning coffee. The stories are well-researched and told, and I look forward to the next episode. Thanks, and keep it up. Down from Pooza 97, Apple Podcast, Canada. And this one. Love it. Five stars. This is why we have phones and podcasts. Thanks, John. Down from Chico Artist, Apple Podcast, U.S. And this one, five stars. My new standard. A wide range of fascinating topics and individuals. Very enjoyable and well-researched podcast with a personable host. That one from Oro de Dio, Apple Podcast, U.S. And this one, great, five stars. Stories are fantastic. Narrator is excellent. That one from Brian Jets, Apple Podcast, U.S. And this one, five stars. Tide is one of the top three. It's Tide is one of the top three podcasts. It's up there with Twilight Histories and Lore. John is an amazing podcaster and I hope he continues to do his amazing podcast, especially like the stuff about space aliens. Down from MPLR, Apple Podcast, U.S. And this one, five stars. Lost Dutchman, top notch. Down from Market Pop, Apple Podcast, U.S. And this one, surprised and thrilled, five stars. Love this show. Very accurate and great voice for storytelling. Sounds like listening to an old friend. Down from Chris Goodson, Charlotte, North Carolina. This one, five stars. Great subject matter and wonderful, sincere narration. These true tales and the exploits of the heroes featured are a delight and an inspiration. Mr. H's narrative style is engaging and sincere. I can't recommend this podcast enough. It's theater for the mind. That one from Foy Greenwood, Apple Podcast, U.S. And this one, a gold mine of fun facts, five stars. Wow, this is right up my alley. I'm a trivia, history, biography, fun facts buff. What a find. So many great episodes to choose from. It's hard to choose which one to listen to next. Keep them coming. That one from Dom Sebko, Apple Podcast, U.S. Thank you all so very, very much for taking the time to send us these reviews. They mean a whole lot to us. This is what people see when they first come to Apple Podcast. Your kind words help to send them our way. Thanks to all who support us through patreon.com forward slash 1001 Stories Network. And all of you who responded to our last Facebook post. On Oak Island, we got a tremendous response. 
and we thank you so much for the conversation. Enjoyed it. Until next week, 8 p.m., everybody stay safe, and we'll be back soon.